You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Well, hello there and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire, an education and leadership coach. I work with school leaders to support them to improve their own well-being and that of their staff. I also have created and now run group coaching programs for women leaders. And I've created the Women Lead Well Coaching Network to provide a supportive network for female school leaders. Basically, I'm on a mission to support and encourage more women into leadership roles in education, but also to support leaders in schools to lead from a position of well-being and a position of knowledge about the best leadership practice out there and how you can apply it in your schools. So in September, I've got the next cohort of the Women Leaders Group coaching program going ahead. So if you would like to join that program, email me and we can have a chat about whether it's for you. I'm sure it would be. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk and I am also working in collaboration with the amazing Yumina Bibi who has been on a previous episode and we are doing a programme for Heads of English. So if you are new to the role of Head of English, if you're about to start the role of Head of English in September or if you are an aspiring Head of English, this programme will be perfect for you. So if you'd like to have a chat about that and whether that might be suitable for you, again, I'm sure it will be, <laughs> you can email me. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk. So today on the show, we welcome the absolutely wonderful and totally inspirational Julie Reese. I talk a lot about values on the podcast. I'm sure if you're a regular listener, you will hear me going on about values and how important they are, because I really believe that they are fundamental to the work that we do in schools and they help to create the sense that we're working together from our shared values with the same aims. And I also talk about living your values. And this is what Julie does as a head teacher and as a person. And she's an advocate for values-based education. And she brings this to life in the school that she currently leads, in the schools that she's been a leader in. And people flock to her school to see this in action because it is actually truly transformational. So I asked Julie to join me on the podcast to tell us all about it. So here she is, Julie Reese. Julie Reese, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. How are you this morning? Thank you, Vicky. Lovely to see you. Yes, really well, sunshine in, so feeling good. It's great, isn't it? It's uh, it's feels like spring. Spring is in the air. It is. It will, it will probably be a while before this goes out. So, you know, the weather could have changed. It could be, you know, <laughs> Arctic blizzards again by the time by the time this podcast is released. So um, it's really great that you've joined us today. I'm really happy. I, I heard you on another podcast and thought that lady has got, uh, you know, something to share with my listeners as well, which is why I asked you to come to come on the podcast. Is lady the right word to use? I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> that lady <laughs> woman makes me feel woman I'm very yes. posh <laughs> um so can you just introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do 
Of course. Um, so I'm Julie Rees. I'm currently a head teacher of a large primary school in Herefordshire, and I've been there for 16 years. Prior to that, I was head teacher of a smaller primary school where I was head teacher for three and a half years. Um, but this last year, I've had the pleasure of my governor supporting me in my coaching work as well. So I coach for one day a week as, and I coach many people across many businesses, um, but primarily head teachers and leaders across the world. So I have the privilege of coaching people from Korea and Singapore and Switzerland and Germany wow. and America, as well as coaching in the UK. Um, it's, it started as a passion um, and it's sort of evolved now. So next year, I think I'll probably have a bigger balance between the headship and the coaching. The two blend together really well. And I do appreciate that my governor's uh, supporting my journey. I call myself, as Emma Gannon uh, talks about it, a multi-hyphenate. I do a little bit of different things um, at, at this ripe old age. Ripe old age. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I think that's absolutely brilliant. The, the fact that you get to do two things that you absolutely love is, is really great, isn't it? Mm. It's a real privilege because I'm not ready to stop headship. Um, you know, I've been ahead since 2003 and I love what I do. I wake up every morning and I never, ever think I don't want to go to school today. I love seeing those children. I love seeing their progress. I, the interaction, the work on teaching and learning, the development of people. That's still my passion. Um, but equally, I love doing that on a different scale and in, um, the challenging environments of some of these head teachers that they're working in to see them click and realize that they have the solutions themselves through the coaching that we go through it's that light bulb moment and it that gives me the same buzz as listening to a five-year-old child who can read all of a sudden you know it's on the, the same level so I've never ever been driven by money or financial gain I've always been driven by changing people's lives so consequently, when I developed my coaching business, um, I thought of people like being ferns. I have this image in my mind that we are all like ferns and we're raveled up quite tightly. And then all of our fronds grow. But some of our fronds need a little bit of encouragement, a bit more coaching. Um, so my business stands for enabling people to flourish, a silver fern coaching. Brilliant. And that concept to me is quite visual and accessible um, when I'm talking to people. And when people do fully flourish in, in their forest, whatever their forest may be, it's just wonderful. And you know that you've empowered them to um, continue on their life journey. Brilliant. I love that metaphor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I won't steal it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> So one of one of the things that that you believe in is is a values based education. And mm. this is something that I, I talk about regularly on the podcast, because I believe that values are so important and central to the the way a school works um, and should underpin everything that happens in a school. So can you describe to the listeners what values-based education actually means? Mm. So I was very fortunate when I first became a head um, to meet a wonderful lady called Bridget Knight, uh, who'd 
come from Oxfordshire as an advisor into Herefordshire where I work and she'd worked with Dr Neil Hawkes and he was the founder of values-based education. He recognised in the 80s uh, when he was leading a school uh, in Oxfordshire that the children um, didn't value themselves perhaps as they had in the past. The conversations around the dinner table with parents perhaps weren't happening so much. There was a lot of materialism going on in the community. And um, he wanted to develop an ethical vocabulary that children really understood around those key values that we know, respect, kindness, compassion, um, happiness, you know, those real core values. What do they mean in, in our lives? So he implemented this programme and values-based education became um, part of what Oxfordshire schools did. And then so when Bridget came to Hereford, she introduced it in Herefordshire. And I was fortunate to be one of the early adopter schools. And we implemented it in the community where, again, perhaps those conversations were not happening with the children at home. So we took a very simple idea that we'd have um, 22 values over two years. Because obviously on August, when you're on the beach, you can just relax. <laughs> so that's why it was 22, um, which the children chose with the community. And each month we really went into each of those values quite deeply. Uh, all of our assemblies were based around that value. Our PSHE curriculum was based around the value. But it was more than that. It was about the adults as well, modelling mm. values and relationships. It was about that beautiful inner work that we do through mindfulness. And mindfulness wasn't really a, a word at that time, but we were doing that already through our reflect, reflective work. It was about um, getting children to be able to self-regulate in terms of making the right behaviour choices. And um, I wrote a book actually called The Little Book of Values. I was Julie Duckworth at the time. And I talk about the stories in there of the children at that time, you know, what they gleaned from their values. And I always remember one of the girls when I went there in year four, she was, a, she would say, a tricky child when I first arrived, bless her. And, um, you know, she, she had no respect for herself or her teachers or her parents. And she was really challenging and all over the place. And for two years, I worked with her individually and her teachers, and we changed the whole culture and our expectations in school. So it didn't become a power struggle anymore. She wasn't having to fight the system. We worked a lot about empowering her. And you may think, my goodness, doing that work with a nine-year-old, you know, but it was remarkable. The work was I was remarkable. just thinking that, actually, because um, when you were talking before, I thought, oh, you know, I've I wonder whether being ahead in a primary school would be more for me than being ahead in a secondary. And then mm. when you were talking, I thought, oh, I don't know if I could engage like a year four pupil in the same way that I could a 14 year old, because mm. the, there would be a difference in terms of emotional maturity and the way that you would have to approach a child. So I did, I did think that, yes. Mm. Yeah. So she went on then um, to when it was her leavers uh, assembly in year six. And I asked each of the children in year six to choose the value that had, had the biggest impact on them since I'd arrived at the school. And she stood up and she said, um, when Mrs. Duckworth, as I was then, had arrived at the school, 
I had no respect for myself or my parents or my teachers or my work even. But um, now I'm leaving the school respecting myself and I know the decisions I make in the future will, will be based on the values that I've learned in these last two years. And when you hear an 11-year-old child speak so confidently and knowledgeably about values in that sense, you know that it has a, an amazing impact. Yeah. But the, the key cornerstones of values are that modelling most definitely. We as the adults have got to be the leaders. So in my school, we only have one rule, and that's no shouting. Yeah. Nobody ever raises their voice above my level. It's all based on relationships. That's another key uh, cornerstone. It's about this inner reflective work that we do all the time. It's about the ethical vocabulary that we develop. Absolutely essential. It's about the atmosphere that is created within the school. We, we work in a climate of delight. So the, all, the school itself wraps itself around the children and we get them to have a thirst for learning. Uh, I really want the children to be curious. And yesterday, I, I, in my whole school assembly, I brought back two fruit from London that I saw in Borough Market. I haven't got a clue what they are, Vicky. Never seen them before <laughs> in my life. And I just held them up at the start of assembly. I said, it's over to you to be curious. You know, when you've got 450 children in front of you, you know, and they're like, oh, I wonder what it could be. And they went off and started researching. And, and I love that about children they are desperately curious they desperately want to find out um, and that's why it works values works because you build up those relationships with the children and it, it sounds amazing it really does what barriers have you faced along the way because it, it it's probably not I'm going to guess being all plain sailing when you've been implementing this and, mm. and doing that work so what barriers have you faced? I, I don't know whether they're barriers um, as such, but I think the, the hurdles that you have to overcome is getting all the staff to understand the whole philosophy around values-based education. Because in my staff, I, um, I have 65 plus staff in the school who work in various roles. And unless you have all of those staff on board um, who are working within a, a values-based ethos, it doesn't work. You only need one or two members of staff who don't understand the importance of reflection or modelling or relationships. Then it, you have inconsistencies. Mm. And as you and I both know, children need to have clear, consistent boundaries and expectations in order um, to, to respond and get the best out of them. So I think one of the biggest hurdles is making sure you've got the right team around you. Um, and that you communicate the values into the, the community that you really believe in as a school, but also um, that you bring in their values as well. Um, it's really important that we get out into the community and see what's going on uh, in how. And when I first went, I went to many houses with um, different people into the community because I've got lots of different sets of parents. I've got, I've got a big Gypsy Roman Traveller community. I've got a big Eastern European community. Um, and it's important to understand the culture and the expectations that community has because they communicate very differently when they come into school. 
So one of the key aspects, I believe, that we need to show as a school is that we truly listen to people. And truly listening is one of my big drivers for any um, culture, community. We can pretend to listen and always have an answer to respond. But if we don't deeply listen to what people are saying and truly understand them, then we don't develop relationships. It's, it's it's interesting that I think that I think that pulls up a couple of things for me. So first of all, I think one of the things that people find most challenging in leadership from from when I do the group coaching program and the conversations that I have is having those or dealing with those situations in which you have staff who are not engaging in the, the way that you would like them to engage and you mentioned that as being one of the challenges that you faced with the values-based education in that some staff you know I don't know if they see it as being too fluffy or whatever whatever it is how have you dealt with that and I agree with you that you that you need to have the right team when I was mm. ahead of English I wouldn't have been able to improve the results without having the right people who could mm. deliver what the children needed to achieve mm. the results. And as leaders, then you work with that team. What, what did you do when you came across that resistance and how, how did you go about, because I'm sure that you did whatever you did in a compassionate way. And mm. I think that's, that's one of the things that I try to communicate on the podcast is that you can have, these honest conversations with people and you can remain compassionate with it mm. it doesn't have to lead to challenge and conflict although occasionally possibly it does so can you tell us sort of how you went about engaging mm. with those members of staff well this is where you have a look at what the needs of the school are and what what's the purpose of what we're trying to do so um Certainly, whenever I went into both of the schools that I have led, we had to look at what was happening currently in terms of um, the outcomes, academic outcomes. But more than that, what is attendance like? What is behaviour telling us about the children? And certainly um, the school where I'm head teacher currently, they had 36 exclusions the year before I became head teacher. And when I really well not all individual children but you know there yeah, were there were a lot still a lot yeah. at that time um but what I did is I asked every member of staff to come along to see what my current school was like at the time um I invited them all along say come and have a look at the atmosphere come and have a look at values-based education where I am currently and they all did and then I was able to talk to them all and say, what do you feel are the biggest challenges for me taking on this, this large school as a head? And um, ultimately, they all said behaviour, 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 behaviour. Um, so when I went in, the first six months was around seeing what how the land was lying. Um, I introduced values-based education on day one uh, through, a, through a big assembly and said, you know, the rules that we have at the moment are going to change over time, but I want to hear your views. And I introduced the value of respect. I said, I'm going to give you this gift and it's called respect. 
Um, and that was quite interesting. So working with the staff the day before, I asked them if they could give one gift to the children as they leave in year six, what would it be? So all of the staff wrote on a piece of paper the gift that they'd like to give to the children. And what do you think they wrote? I don't want to say, but I, I, they didn't say they wanted to give them good SATS results, did they? No, they didn't. Oh, good. <laughs> they were amazing. I'm so pleased. They were amazing. When they really thought about it, what they did want to give the children was happiness, oh. determination, respect. Yeah, they wanted to give good. them those key values. I'm glad. <laughs> so already I had the staff on board because they told me the values yeah. that they thought, but they, they perhaps some of them were unsure about how to give those values. So I put all of those words in a great big box and wrapped it in gold paper with a big bow in the hall for the first assembly. And I had the youngest child out in the school and the eldest child out in the school. And I said to the children in the assembly, I said, I'm your new head teacher. And I said, and this box is a gift for you all. And I wonder what it could be. <laughs> so they were saying things like, it's plans for a swimming pool. <laughs> we're going to have this great big ride in the playground. You know, everything, everything that they would have wanted. And um, so I got the two children to open the box. And then I started pulling out these words that the teachers had written the day before. And we put them up in the assembly hall. And that was the start of introducing values-based education in this school but because the teachers had already said that this is what we want them to have we're just not sure how to do it they were sort of 70 percent of the way there and I just knew I had to go in and listen and find out what the barriers were so part of the issues really were not understanding where these children had come from in the community um it, it was about engaging with the parents the local community and understanding the backstories that these children were coming in with, which were quite challenging in, in some instances. And then it was about putting um, time and effort into really understanding where there were social and emotional aspects um, in, in terms of special educational needs. Some children in the school um, were probably on the ASD spectrum, but had not been assessed. So having a look at all of the SEND in the school was really, really important. We had a lot of English as an additional language as well. Um, so looking at the, the culture of those children, where they were coming from, their countries, talking to their parents, and also making sure that those children were well equipped in, in learning English and being able to communicate, that was really important. And within six months, you know, those exclusions were coming down but I was very clear from the beginning that we were just going to have that one rule and that was going to be no shouting we looked at the behavior policy first of all and I think the appendix of the behavior policy was something like <laughs> 10, 10 pages you know if you sneeze this is the consequence if you do this this is the consequence you cannot operate within a, a policy that works like that so especially, our, sorry, sorry I was going to say especially when you've got staff that I think this links into what you've just said because some of the staff that I found have presented the most challenge in terms of when you're trying to bring them on board is 
staff who lack that empathy or emotional intelligence and find it very difficult to see mm. things through the children's lens or from mm. the child's perspective you know that this child has got a very difficult home life and they're facing this challenge and that challenge from somebody who says and that's why they need the behavior policy to be we're doing this and this is the consequence and you will understand that if you do that then this is what happens and those people who see things in a very binary way or a, a, it's black or it's white and this is mm. what we are doing and 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 i find that that's where the most challenge comes if the people who are working in your school lack that emotional tele- intelligence and empathy have you have you experienced that um I think what values-based education does, it gives you a philosophy that mm. enables you then to have those conversations about yeah. look, this, look at this child. Yes, we do have staff who um, need to have those longer conversations and that depth of understanding about the child's background. But I must say, um, because we live and work under this ethos of values-based education those conversations aren't difficult Mm -hmm. and we glean the evidence about those children and their families and we're very open and transparent I think when staff do struggle um, in my school or any school it's around power they see it as a power struggle with the child so you know the the typical child who perhaps shows some oppositional and defiant behavior and um, the adults just doesn't get it you know they should be in charge and why isn't that child doing that well if we empower these children by understanding them and unpicking what their needs are and letting them have a little bit of say on what would satisfy them in the day what would fulfill their needs then we're far more likely to be successful aren't we and and values-based education for me has given us the the common language and the framework to unpick all of that so we aren't in a situation where we've got teachers being oppositional either to the leadership team or to the children it's interesting isn't it that you you could have those members of staff who you know do don't understand the defiance that the, the child they are, you know that opposition to whatever they're saying and yet they've, they're taking the same stance almost it's like do you not see the irony here that you're both entrenched you, that child is digging mm. their heels in and mm. you're doing exactly the same thing you're, you're but I think what, what we were talking about before we started recording is that sense of if you have shared values in your school if mm. you if if you live your values in everything you do as a school mm. those conversations are easier because that's always a way in isn't it mm. you know these are our values and I'm, mm. I'm I'm struggling a little bit at the moment to work out how you know how you're applying those values through what you're doing and it can be a mm. sort of a, an icebreaker or a conversation starter can't it mm. it's a very powerful way of helping you to engage with staff more effectively totally um and i think if from the beginning you've got the staff to understand that that's what they want the children to leave the school with that's that's the greatest gift we can give these children yes they need to have their achievement journey but to be able to go away with resilience and responsibility and respect as a child as you go on to your next stage of education or next part of your life 
that is going to put you in in good stead for the future. And who wouldn't want that? You know, there's and and if you don't, if you cannot work within that framework, then you have to think about whether that school or that community is the right place for you. Um, and some people did leave when I first um, started because it wasn't the right fit for them, and it was that was the right choice. We all have a choice in life as as to where we want to work. And, the, and I was listening to a podcast with Dave Brailsford. Um, mm. you know the cycling guy who was in yes. charge of team sky and that's one of the things that he said it, it, he talks about it like you know it's not it's not a problem <clears throat> excuse me <laughs> this is <clears throat> this is us and this is the way we work and if you don't fit into that or you don't you know you don't agree with that that's absolutely fine mm. you know but this isn't the place for you mm. and I think in education we need to understand that a little bit better mm. because I think some, some people think, well, I work here. I need to, this is, this is my place of work. I need to just carry on working here for, and sometimes I find coaching can help those people sometimes to understand that they do have different options. This mm. isn't the only option, the only option you've got. And I think mm. sometimes it's potentially that sense of, parents who did the same job for their whole lives and there's a feeling of well this is the job that I've chosen so I have to stick with it and I have to keep mm. coming here every day even if I really don't enjoy doing it and I think we need to sort of free people from that from that sense that they're committed to it and they must be they must be loyal and stay even if mm. they're not gaining any sort of fulfillment from it. Mm. That's the key, isn't it? It's um, asking about what the joy is. What's the joy that mm. you find every day in, in doing this job? And also, I think you mentioned earlier, let's look at it from the view of the child sat in your classroom or being in the playground, engaging you with you if you're a lunchtime supervisor. What's their experience of that moment, that lesson? Are they feeling that you are truly listening, that you have them totally um, uh, the purpose of what you're teaching that they are your focus that you have compassion and empathy for them I do a lot of work um, with see me profiling as right. well as resilient I know we're both in resilient leaders too and that's fascinating for schools when we start to think about our beliefs and our behavior traits and looking at those staff who lead with their thinking preference and lead with a T preference and those who lead with an F preference, a feeling preference. And we're all somewhere along that spectrum, aren't we? But um, in doing that work with staff, that has really improved the values of tolerance and understanding within the team. And I would urge any school to have a look um, at that system to ensure that you get the right balance within the team is a leader that you employ people with all the different behavior traits Am but I right certainly in thinking that's based on Myers-Briggs yeah well, it's, well it's all based on Carl, Carl Jung he was yeah. the um obviously the guru um well it goes back to Hippocrates you know way way back um so there are different different types of um personality assessment tools Myers-Briggs um, MBTI that's that's one tool um, and that looks at our extroverted and our introverted preferences and our feeling and our thinking and our sensing and our intuition 
Um, whereas see me um, is a, an alternative um, to that. It's a color profile and it talks about uh, Wes Myers-Briggs tends to put you more in a box. See me tends to talk about your natural persona, what you're like when you're most comfortable and relaxed, maybe at home. Um, and what prep behavior preferences you show there. And then your adapted persona, how you adapt when you're in school depends on what your role is and what the expectation is. So my, my profile for school is much more even against, um, so I, I have to lead T and F, although my preference is to lead with F. I use my instinct a lot, very highly inclusive, want the team to succeed. But obviously, because due to the nature of headship, you have to step into a, a T preference as well, a thinking preference. Whereas at home, my T almost doesn't exist. <laughs> and in fact, what, what I am at home is, is much more extroverted, and I, which is interesting. You know, I get my energy from being with people and working with people um, at home. That's very high. Where at school, yes, I like to be part of the team and include the team, but I need a little bit of reflection time as well before I make decisions at school. Um, and I think that's probably changed over the years. I think um, when I was first ahead, wanting to be a people pleaser, as you do, you want to, mm. everybody got everything. <laughs> Give me a pay rise, Julie. Oh, yes, there you go. There's another thousand pounds. <laughs> Doesn't really happen. But um, that that work has been fascinating. And when I've, I've worked with teams now, you know, all over the world because of the fantastic tool that we have called Zoom and um, people do their assessments and they say it's like looking into a mirror and then you put the, everybody's places on these wheels and um, all of a sudden the light bulb goes, you know, oh my goodness, that's why I'm finding it difficult to get on with this person because they're coming from more of a T extroverted preference and I'm an introvert with a feeling preference and that's why we're not actually um, making progress in our relationship. So wouldn't it be wonderful if all schools had this insight? It's interesting because I, I always start my group coaching program with a real reflection on yourself, personality tests and leadership tests, quizzes, mm. things like that. And I think this is <clears throat> oh, just a, when you were talking a while ago, I've got a frog in my throat this morning. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it made me think of when you were talking earlier about deeply listening, it's the element of awareness, isn't it? Mm, and totally. the awareness of self is so important, but I think what you're, what, I think what's come across really strongly in what you're saying today is the idea of, yes, awareness of yourself is extremely important. And a lot of the leadership training out there focuses on self-awareness as a, mm. as though it's just a, that's the one thing you need to have self-awareness, but you need to develop awareness of others and awareness of your environment. Don't you? And mm, I think yeah. this is where I think some of the more traditional sort of training for leadership is not quite well developed enough because I don't think they look so um, specifically into that element of awareness and self and others and environment. And I think when you were talking before about deeply listening as a leader in a school, you have to listen because you have to understand the people in the school who you're working with 
and the environment in which you're working. And as a leader in a school, you are not experiencing the same things that your staff and the children mm-hmm. are experiencing, are you? And mm-hmm. I almost think as well that <clears throat> there's, um, there's a thing in science, isn't there, that when something's observed, it changes its behaviour. It doesn't mm-hmm. act the same. So you can do all your quality assurance. You can go and observe lessons. You can say, we're going to take some books in and have a look at those. But you never actually see the reality of what's mm. happening and unless you focus on developing that awareness of yourself but also equally awareness of others and awareness of the environment that's the only way that you can really get an understanding of what's actually I think you said as well what's happening currently mm. in your school use different ways and listening is a key mm. element of that isn't it listening Mm. to people and finding Mm. out what's going on and taking the time to actually go out there and listen deeply and work that out I don't know sort of what your thoughts on that are before we find out more from Julie I'd like to just tell you a little bit about our partner Head Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school the aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. Oh, yeah, I think um, things have changed so much over time, haven't they? So... Our current thinking in our school is, um, you know, apart from our early careers teachers who have to legally have formal observations, we don't do formal observations. The best way of seeing what's going on in those classrooms is to have the children and the books and the teachers all together and, and talk to them about, so so what was this lesson about? What, what did, what was the learning in this lesson? What was the intention in the teaching? What did the child glean from the lesson? What are they, what are they remembering? Um, because that triangulation is what's going to tell you what is truly going on um, in the lesson. So, yes, being having that leadership, this is where leadership presence comes in yeah. as well from resilient yeah. leaders. So having that presence and we having that presence is about, yes, when you are in the room, having the presence but also is that continue when you leave the room as we say it's like perfume don't we yeah does it still linger does your presence still linger um there so I think going and engaging with every single member of staff um role modeling so in our school senior leaders take it in turns to go on lunchtime duty so that we're engaging with lunchtime supervisors we're seeing what's going on in the playgrounds um, phase leaders have phase meetings with their teams so that we can really unpick what's going well. We, we need to celebrate. Um, but, you know, what are the areas we, we feel are difficult at the moment? 
It's ensuring that the systems that are in place are led by the people who are using them. So that we listened a couple of years ago to teachers' work-life balance. I mean, that's a huge focus, as we know at the moment, and particularly after coming out of a pandemic. Um, we want to ensure that we're really nurturing everybody's well-being. And that should be our priority, because if our teachers are well and our staff are well, then the children are going to benefit. So a few years ago, um, we looked at how ridiculous the marking had become. And I don't know whether you're aware in the primary, if you didn't have a pink and a green and a yellow highlighter and 20 different colour pens, um, you know, you allegedly weren't marking correctly. Um, so we decided to um, have a look at, well, what would that look like if we had no marking at all? No written feedback in these books. And first of all, some of the teachers were like, oh, no, can't imagine never, ever being able to write in a child's book. But we listened to the children. We said, what makes a difference to your work? How do you know how to improve your work? And their immediate feedback was when my teacher talks to me, when my teacher tells me. Do you actually read the comments and the feedback that it's in your books? Well, it's quite difficult sometimes because we don't understand the teacher's writing or um you know oh well my teacher yes she goes home and she marks my book but it's the same as my friends next door so we actually took the risk five years ago and said right we're going to go to no written feedback but we're going to give feedback live in the lessons continuously and the teachers have a planning and feedback book my goodness vicky the difference in the outcomes of the children is immense they have real ownership on their books it's beyond and you can imagine the difference in the work-life balance for the teachers as well not having to do the piles and piles of written marking in the books um, they now can put that effort into planning for the children's needs to you know quite an intense detail again we don't have any format for planning the teachers have planning um, handwritten planning manuals you know some of them type their planning up but it's up to them how they want to plan what I'm interested in is do the children um, understand what they've learned can they remember what they've learned can they apply what they've learned and are they enjoying their learning are they still curious if that's all in place then teachers are empowered to run their classrooms as they want you need to meet Julie Norman. She's done exactly the same thing in her schools down in, um, I think it's Somerset where she is. Mm. Um, she's done the same. They don't they don't mark the books because they listen to the children. Yeah. And some of the children in her school said, I don't want my teacher going no. home and having to mark all my books on a Sunday. That's no. not fair on the teacher no. as well, which is a, and it's interesting because I think, I think maybe like I was thinking before, you know, I could deal with a 14-year-old, I could talk to a 14-year-old, would I be able to do the same with a nine-year-old? But I think we have to <clears throat> we have to not think like that because children are, they're only little human beings, aren't they? You know, we're, we're all essentially the same. We're just at different levels of experience or wisdom or whatever it is. Although sometimes some children have been much wiser than some of the adults that have experienced but it's it's actually trusting the children isn't it and when they I think it's the same it's that it's that thing about listening and when people mm. feel listened to they feel that's part of the way that you create 
the respect, isn't it? The, mm. the way that you build the relationships and that sense of trust that when you tell us something, you know, we believe you, we believe that that's the case mm. and, and, and actually we'll do something about it. And I think that's, that's one of the keys probably in terms of you were talking about behavior and we, you know, we can come back to that now because it can support your behavior systems, can't mm, it? Because mm. the pupils feel that sense of responsibility that, oh, they trust us and they ask us and they do respect what we say. Mm. And therefore they feel that they're, they're invested more in it, would you say? Totally. Um, again, the behavior policy in our school has, has become so simplified now. Um, but I actually want to link it, keeping with behaviour, but I want to link it actually to our, our mission statement, because a few years ago, well, before the London 2012 Olympics, our mission statement as a school used to be um, improving today, uh, improving tomorrow by learning today. See, even I can't remember it from then. <laughs> um, and we went with that originally, and uh, it's quite Americanized, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. And we realised... American there's something the rhythm of it isn't yeah it? improving tomorrow by learning today um and we realized at the time when we when we decided that that was going to be what we were about um at Ledbury um we felt that that was rooted in our values but the staff had chosen that the staff had chosen that's what it was going to be and then we came to the 2012 Olympics and the children were all talking about oh my goodness the athletes are so determined to succeed ellie simmons watch her she's determined to succeed and um a couple of children in year six said to us oh let me primary school we're determined to succeed and it became so obvious to us right let me primary school we're determined to succeed and that became our mission statement but what that taught us more than anything is if we're going to get this right, we need to give the children more and more trust to drive these values. So what started as 22 values has now been reduced to 12 values and they're right. called our B values. So be kind, be honest, be wise. And we've linked them very, very closely now with our PSHE curriculum. But we've also then linked it to our behaviour policy. So our behaviour policy now, again, driven by the children, um, we think about three R's that we want the children to leave with, respect, responsibility and resilience. And the responsibility is the driver for the behaviour policy. So it's just two concentric circles. I wish the viewers, uh, the listeners could see this <laughs> visibly. Two concentric circles. The inner circle says, this is my responsibility. And in that, it says my words, my actions, my behavior, my thoughts, and so on. Then the outside concentric circle says, this is not my responsibility. Other people's words, other people's thoughts, other people's actions. And, you know, just really stripping everything back and using those two concentric circles driven by our values as part as our behavior policy has had an immense impact in the school. And uh, when the school improvement partner comes, and she, she always um, you know, has a look around, she always comments on the calm, purposeful atmosphere, the children, they're, they're not, it's not a forced atmosphere. The children are just very relaxed. Yes, you, we are always, because we are such a highly inclusive school, we are always going to have those children 
who need, do need a little bit of extra nurturing, extra guidance, but we still work with them to take responsibility for their behaviour. They haven't got a separate behaviour policy. Um, the children decide on their sanctions. Not every child's going to be an angel 24 hours a day, but it would be wrong and I wouldn't want them to. But when issues do arise, we talk to the children about the values, the values that should have been shown and perhaps weren't shown. So what consequence do you believe you should have as a result of uh, you know, this, this not happening? The children own their behaviour, but it works within those two circles. The children understand it, the staff understand it, the parents understand it. Keep it simple and then it will be effective it's so important that isn't it a lot of the work that I do when I'm coaching I don't know if it's the same for you comes from when people are trying to control things that are out of their own sphere of influence Mm -hmm. you know the behavior of, of of the head teacher and the impact that that's having and understanding that you can only control what's within your own sphere of influence you mm. cannot control like the actions and the behaviors of that person and how when you start talking about that people become much more empowered and they understand much more that well this is what I control and this is what I can what I can do and it empowers you but it also it avoids you having that sense of why won't that person do what I want them to do (laughs) So you don't when get you can frustrated. let go of that yeah yes. yeah totally you let it go your your tolerance and your understanding levels just go so so deep uh, you know absolutely immensely deep um and i i also think on that note the the control element you've got to understand the only thing you can ever control is this moment in time for yourself you cannot control anything else. And the work of Will Schultz, I don't know whether you've done any work with um, ICO, inclusion, control and openness. That is so insightful about people's needs, about how the, what are their needs in terms of them wanting to be included? How much control can you give people? How much openness um, can you value with people? That's another fundamental tool I think should be taught um, to leaders as part of their development. Um, But you you also reminded me of the environment facet within resilient leaders elements that, um, yes, we can have these concentric circles, but if you haven't got the environment of trust, of uh, that the school manifests this calm, purposeful environment, I mentioned earlier about creating the optimum learning environment. So, what does your display say about the school? What does your entrance hall say about your school? What does the person on the front desk say about your school? It's creating that ethos so that everybody does feel completely valued as they walk in through that front door. If the person on the front desk keeps their head down while a parent enters the school and wants a conversation, then that's not displaying our values. It's got to be the golden thread that runs through absolutely everything. Every morning, myself, my senior leaders were out on the gates and at the front of the school, welcoming the children through the gates, you know, talking to the parents, creating this, welcome to our school. We want you to come in today. This is our family. You're, you're, we're welcoming your children from your family to our family. Um, and, and do not 
take that for granted, that presence, having that presence out there with the parents first thing in the morning is reassuring. Um, the children feel as though they're being valued, being passed from one adult to another. It creates the right atmosphere. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I, I think I've probably said it on the podcast is that if you're a leader in a school, you have to get out of your office and you've got to go and you've got to engage with the staff in your school. You've got to get to know them. You've got to go and talk to them, have those conversations. And it's like I was saying to you, I think before we started talking, I was often, I would often spend my whole day in school talking to staff. And some leaders feel like that is, it's, you know, it's time when they've not been able to do all the other things that they need to do, you know, all the paperwork and all the other things that go with it. My my take on that is always that if you spend that time going out and getting to know your staff, what you have to do in terms of the paperwork is less mm. because when you mm. engage staff in that way, they're on board with what you want to do mm. and mm. you can be more reassured that what that what's happening in your school is 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 quality and is it it, it doesn't require as much monitoring or paperwork from from leaders. Totally. Um, and also you get to know your staff's strengths as well. So it enables you to build a team then and put the right people in the right place on the bus. So, yeah. you know, for example, I've got a brilliant year one teacher who leads on phonics and she, you know, she's really, really good at that. But I know that I wouldn't make her the maths lead, for example. But I know that her passion is with the language, the early style of phonics. She makes such a big difference there. Our phonics outcomes have always been way above national because I know that's where her passion lies. So make sure that the right people are in the right place. Um, and it's like myself and my deputies. I've got a curriculum lead uh, who's amazing. She loves organising the whole curriculum, working with subject leaders, we developed a beautiful curriculum called um, Belonging, uh, Being, Belonging and Becoming, it's called. And I love this idea that the children have this sense of place of being where they are, belonging where they are, but what can they become in the future? And she's really, really passionate about driving that. My other um, deputy, she's great at doing the data, all the pupil premium stuff. She's a wonderful teacher she um still teaches in year six um and the three of us together you know we all bring different strengths and i i do most of the people work because that's where my passion lies talking to people getting the best out of people really empathizing when people are having tricky times because when you have a large staff well i've got i think about 21 teachers because some of them part-time but I've got over 65 staff altogether. They are the biggest investment in your budget. If you, as a head teacher, look at your budget, yeah. you know, so much over, you know, around 80% of your budget is going to be on staffing. So why them, wouldn't you? Yeah, I told someone who was uh, doing the coaching for MPQSL yesterday, go and have a look at how much of your, your budget is spent on staff. Yeah, yeah. Because she was taught, which she was having... <clears throat> It, we, we ended up in the conversation she was talking about how she felt was a bit of a hierarchy in her school and it was a them and us and mm. SLT and and then on the other hand she was saying but I know that as a leader I've got to be able to make decisions and staff are looking to me to to 
to guide them and to tell them where we're going. And she was talking about the clarity of direction element, mm-hmm. really, and mm-hmm. saying, and I was talking about how, well, you know, you're saying one thing that you don't want a hierarchical structure. And then on the other hand, you say, as a leader, I need to be quite, you know, firm and make decisions and, do, you mm-hmm. know, do all this. But I think that there's there's a sense that, I don't know where I was going with this. I can't remember what you said last, but but that sense that, you know, as a leader, you is there a hierarchy? I'm like... I think I think one of the things um, that I've learned through resilient leaders is different people can be what we call on point at different times. You don't always have to be the one leading from the front, do you? No. So the the really important part of being a leader is recognizing when you can step back, when you can delegate, when you can see that you're perhaps not the best person to lead in this. And that is so empowering and releasing when you do imagine that happening. Um, I, I cannot tell you, it gives you freedom. So it's letting go of the control and giving the control to somebody else on different projects at different times because you know that they are actually the best person. So, for example, I might step into the classroom and teach in a year two classroom because I know that that would release my computer need to go to a seminar um, all about rediscovering the computing for the whole school. So it's really recognising that when are you the best person to go forward and engage in uh, an event or some training um, or actually go and speak to Ofsted. I'm not going to be speaking to Ofsted about everything because I don't know absolutely everything in my new detail about my school. However, what I do know is that I've put the right people <laughs> in the right places to and, lead. And that is, for me to hear you say that, I go, woohoo, you know, a leader who says, I don't need to know everything about my school. I don't need to know like the minutiae, I trust other people mm. to be able to, to do that. You don't have to micromanage people. Mm. You don't have to know everything that's going on if you've got people doing those roles that you trust. To finish mm. off, um, a couple of times you've mentioned the word ethics mm. and I, I, I just wanted to run this past you because I, I go on Twitter quite often and I saw um, I saw a post and ethical leadership at the minute. It, it's a buzz phrase, isn't it? And mm. on the MPQ, SL, MPQH, MPQ, um, EL, they are, you know, there's a module on ethical leadership and behaviours mm. and it's been really interesting, actually, for the leaders who were on the program to start thinking about their ethics. And th- there's a piece of work on values in that. And someone had said on um, on Twitter that senior leaders don't deliberately make things worse. They don't try to harm staff. They do try to make schools better and they do work very hard. And that was why he said he didn't think a focus on ethical leadership was necessary because leaders already try to do the right thing and I I put a couple of I put a couple of comments back um and it was quite evident I wasn't going to change his his mind on the way that he thought Mm. about the, the way that he thought about that my thinking is that I think a focus on ethical leadership is necessary and I think 
yes, it might be something that as leaders, you know, maybe we have ethical, moral principles and we sort of, we work from them, but sometimes we don't, we don't realise and we can very easily, or leaders, I think, can very easily be drawn into maybe some unethical practice because of the pressures that they're under and I just wonder what what your thoughts on you know ethical leadership and leading from an ethical framework are. I think the your first and foremost um priority as leaders to put the children that you are building your school for at the center of every decision that you make and to me ethical leadership is being truly aligned to the values that you want to live by and that your school is living by. So I'm just thinking currently now we're in a position, aren't we, where we're, we are going to be doing the SATs, particularly now for my key stage two children. And I do know of some head teachers who are disciplining the children this year because they're saying they haven't had yeah. the exposure to the curriculum that they, they should have. But I'm also aware that there's going to be other heads out there who are going to cram these children through the SATs, you know, really push them and perhaps not make the right ethical, what I consider to be the right ethical decisions for these children because of the pressures that are happening externally. And this is when we look at the environmental facet uh, within resilient leaders elements. It's really important that our values um, and our intentions are clearly aligned and that we don't bow to that pressure, that external pressure. And to me, ethical leadership does need to be debated. What does that actually mean in practice? Does that mean that you, you really now get those children pushed through like a sausage machine and that's all they come out with at the end of year six, being able to be squeezed through SATs in a curriculum which they may not have done as in-depth the last two years because of the pandemic or are we going to be true to our values and just share where these children are at currently? I mean, it's it's an ethical dilemma, isn't it? Because if I, I can understand why a school in challenging circumstances needs to get the best results that it can mm. so that it can potentially improve an Ofsted rating to then improve its standing in the community to change the profile of the, the students or the pupils who go there. You know, I, I get that ethical dilemma, but unless, I, I feel like unless as a leader, you learn about ethics and you understand mm. that you will be put in those positions where you've, you've, there is an ethical dilemma. You might believe this, but I attempted to do something that's unethical mm. because mm. eventually it will be, in the interests of the children or in the interests of your school and it it's really important that leaders get chance to understand ethical principles and ethical frameworks and how what they do sit inside that mm. and then to explore in um i think probably in a non-threatening environment what would you do about that to consider mm. to consider that and to learn about it and to understand it and i, I agree with the guy you know senior leaders don't deliberately make things worse or they don't try to harm staff but sometimes that happens inadvertently mm. and unless mm. they're able to reflect on their practice and understand that and how it links into their ethics and their values they will make mistakes like that won't they and they will harm staff and they will you know make things worse mm. but inad inadvertently often 
Totally. And you, I mean, you do hope that when you do have those conversa- conversations with the external assessors, and I include Ofsted within that, that, you know, if you have followed your ethics, that there will be an appreciation that you have done absolutely everything you can within your power to ensure that the children in your care have had the best, the absolute best exposure and teaching and the curriculum to the highest standard that you can deliver. And if you are following an ethical vocabulary and your values and your ethics are, you know, are in a really good place, then those conversations will be productive and there will be good outcomes. And that will be recognised within leadership assessment. I think we see clearly in government what happens when there is not a focus on ethics and ethical leadership. That, that, um, is, the, that is a real challenging issue for us, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, we're role models in the community, aren't we? Totally. Totally. And I I do understand the position that we're coming from. You know, we've we've been in high stakes accountability environment for a very long time. And that has put leaders under a significant amount of pressure. Mm. And I think it's right that, you know, government led courses like MPQSL, MPQHGL, whatever, have a focus on ethical leadership. But there also has to be an understanding of why some of those unethical practices have ended up taking place. Mm. And you can't just solve that problem of perhaps these unethical practices like cramming for SATs or extra extra help being provided Mm. in SATs, Mm. things like that, that Mm. they sort of sit on the edge of the box. Is it right Mm. or is it wrong? Mm. Without actually looking at, you know, as government, as policymakers, how have we contributed to that Mm, mm. environment in which school leaders feel that it's okay to act unethically Mm. because of the Mm. pressures that they're under. And I I don't think there's an an answer to that, but I do think that leaders need to be educated in ethics and values and how they underpin Mm. leadership. Most definitely. But I think if you've got your own policies and procedures in place and systems that you have got a really good curriculum and you've got people who are passionate about making a difference to children's life, then the outcomes will speak for themselves. It goes back to, I mean, we've touched on it several times, the trust part of the Patrick Lencioni, five dysfunctions of a team, that that work within uh, five dysfunction teams are absolutely crucial and that bottom part of the pyramid trust um, that enables us then to have good debate um, really ensuring that we are challenging each other and we are doing the best by those those children in our care when I first started teaching I wasn't quite sure why I had chosen teaching yeah, um, I was going too, to I go think. in I was going to go into the civil service um, and, you know, and I passed my exams for that. And then at the last minute I went to teach. Um, well, I didn't teach. I was helping out at primary school on a Wednesday afternoon and I loved it. Uh, I'm, I'm the eldest cousin in my family as well. So I was always looking after my little cousins. Um, but then after the first year, I came across um, Krista McAuliffe. And she was the first teacher in space. She went up into the Challenger and it exploded 73 oh, yes, seconds. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. And um, her mantra was, I touch the future, I teach. And to me, that's why I'm still in teaching. 
because I want to make sure that these children do lead with those ethics, with the values, with that determination to succeed, that whatever they are faced with in life, they are well equipped to know that they can get into that growth mindset and say, okay, when I was at my school, my head teacher said to me, I've got the determination to succeed. So no matter how tough this is, there's going to be a way for me to succeed. And if that can happen to those children who are five to 11 now, and well, I'm, when I'm well gone in years to come and they're still recalling that they've got those values, well, that make, that's what makes me proud. That's brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> oh, Demi, you just, you got me there, Julie. <laughs> and I think that's a perfect perfect way to end the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today thank you so much for joining me there is just a wealth of of just brilliant wisdom advice for people to take away there so thank you so much it's been my pleasure and thank you for asking me to come on the podcast and if people want to find out a little bit more about you about um your silver fern where can they do that well i probably the best place is it on twitter i'm at julie reese 100 um but i'm also on the resilient leaders elements page as one of the consultants or they could contact you and you can pass on my yeah, details. Definitely. Thank you so much. It's no, been, it's been a pleasure. Joy. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Take care. I'm sure you will be in total agreement with me about how fantastic Julie is. I think she said just so many things there. Lots of the things that we talked about come from the Resilient Leaders Elements programme. And if you would like to know more about that, it is a transformational program for leaders. It shows on average, you do a self-assessment at the start of it and and again at the end of it. And after leaders have been through the program, they tend to have improved on average by over 20%, which is just phenomenal results really. But if that's something that interests you and you'd like to have a chat with with me about whether it could work in your school or for you as a leader, do email me. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk. Some of the things that Julie said that I just want to pull out really is that leadership, and I think everything that Julie says actually embodies this, is that leadership is about enabling people to flourish. So you really have to focus on how you can develop people effectively in your organisation. Because when you think about it, the people are your organisation. You don't have anything without them. So you need to develop them professionally so that they can be the best that they can be and support the pupils in the best way possible. She talks also as well about that awareness of others awareness of self and awareness of others and awareness of the environment and the importance of deeply listening that is a real key in what julie says actually to me deeply listening to people not just listening so that you can respond or that you're in a conversation but actually really listening to people and that can be listening not only to what they say but to their body language, their gestures, their facial expressions. What is your intuition telling you when you listen to this this person? That's really, really important. And when she talks about understanding what's happening 
currently in your school. If you are going to make improvements, you have to be able to understand that. You have to know what's going on in your school currently. You know, do you know, like really know and understand it, what's going on in your school currently? Or do you just think you know? Because there is a difference. And I think you need to know which one of those two things applies. Do you think you know what's going on? Or do you really know? Do you actually know? Have you listened to staff? Have you listened to the pupils, the parents? Have you really found out what's going on? Have you worked out what the barriers are? What things are getting in the way of them improving themselves or contributing to development in your school? Because unless you understand that and get those people on board and engage them, you're not going to be making any difference. It, I think it's what Susan Scott in her book, Fierce Leadership, calls squid eye. So I would recommend you read the book. But basically, a guy goes fishing for squid. He can't catch them. All the locals are having great success catching lots of squid. So the guy goes to the local, one of the locals, and says, look, I can't catch any squid. What's happening? And the local says to him, you need to develop squid eye. And that means seeing things from the perspective of the squid. And I'm going to leave it there because I think that's that's a very profound statement. But think about it. I think it could change the way that you approach your leadership. So thanks again to Julie. If you're interested in my group coaching program or the Women Leaders Group Coaching Network, or you'd like to find out more about one-to-one coaching or the Resilient Leaders Element, let me know. Email me. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk or you can arrange a chat via the website at transformeducationcoach.com. Thank you so much for listening and I will speak to you next time. Take care of yourself take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.